Hello and welcome to the Pacific Center podcast. My name is Dr. Greg Lane and I will be your host as we explore many interesting topics with many amazing people from a variety of professional backgrounds over the months and years ahead. The focus of this podcast will be the intersection of the traditional healthcare practices of various cultures and the modern scientific research on peak physical and cognitive performance. The show will be delivered in an interview format. Quick disclaimer, uh, while we may be discussing some health-related issues and therapies, in no way will things be construed as medical advice. As always, if you are seeking information or treatment for a medical condition, please consult with a licensed health care provider. So our guest today is Eric Brand. Eric is a graduate of the Pacific College of Oriental Medicine and a fluent Chinese speaker. Eric has pursued extensive academic and clinical opportunities in mainland China, Hong Kong, and Taiwan. Following a prolonged internship at Chang'un Memorial Hospital in Taiwan, Eric became immersed in numerous projects related to Chinese medical translation and herbal research. He is the author of A Clinician's Guide to the Use of Granule Extracts and the co-author of the text Concise Chinese Materia Medica, and he has edited a variety of modern and classical texts. Eric has a particular passion for Chinese herbal processing, herbal authentication, and quality discernment. He serves as a TCM advisor to the American Herbal Pharmacopeia and is a U.S. delegate for the ISO Technical Committee on TCM Standards. We're going to be speaking with Eric from his home office in Boulder, Colorado. Eric, welcome. It's so great to see you uh, virtually and, and have you here. Uh, it's been a while since I've seen you. We had a nice lunch here the last time you were in San Diego. Uh, we're in for a real treat today to pick your brain on something that I know you're extremely passionate about. Um, before I begin, I want to read this brief passage from the classic Chinese medical text, the Neijing Su Wen, that will springboard us nicely into our discussion of the vast and fascinating subject of herbal medicine. Those who strive to go beyond normal human limits will remain light and strong, and although they grow old in years, they will remain able-bodied and flourishing. So Eric, take us back, if you will, to the first known uses of herbs in China and uh, in India and ancient Greece and uh, Western travelers and, you know, like Marco Polo and the like, or just kick us off here, buddy. <laughs> well, that's a very big and broad topic, but uh, the roots of herbal medicine in all cultures go back for thousands of years. So many of the early formative texts in Chinese medicine emerged around the same time, actually, as some of the early uh, Greek texts of herbal medicine. Uh -huh. um, and so you have actually a lot of interaction between uh, China and the Arabic world uh, the, the in, uh, within South Asia as well as within Europe. So throughout the history of Chinese medicine, there's been a long uh, assimilation of new Chinese herbal medicine, new herbal medicines, new ideas, new concepts, and then a lot of transport of herbal medicines along the Silk Road going across Central Asia uh, to connect the East with Europe, as well as um, after the age of exploration, you had a lot of further development of the, what they call the 
the maritime Silk Road, where basically the trade of spices, herbal medicines, exotic materials from Southeast Asia and India by sea traveling through China. So China has a very long history of absorbing foreign medicines. In terms of its earliest recorded knowledge, essentially the kind of the, it starts with a, a myth of the myth of Shen Nong. Yeah. And the first uh, Materia Medica text in Chinese medicine that uh, largely survived to the present day is the text of the Shen Nong Ben Cao Jing. Shen Nong Ben Cao Jing is ascribed uh, to this mythological figure, Shen Nong. Uh, Shen Nong, in, according to the myth of Shen Nong, he tasted uh, many different herbs, discerned which items were poisons, which items were medicines, which items were food. He helped, he's sort of a, a mythical figure that sort of honors the, the countless people that. Uh, diet and experimentation for what is food, what is medicine. He's sort of the, uh, a figure of uh, the f sort of regarded as the mythological founder of Chinese agriculture, animal husbandry, and herbal medicine. And sort of the myth of Shen Nong is that one day, while trying to discern which items were food, which items were medicine, he ingested a poisonous substance and died. This mm -hmm. myth largely kind of uh, in a sense, uh, thanks all of the countless unnamed ancestors that came before as human society developed and people learned which things were edible, which were poisonous in their own regional areas. Mm. And uh, from the Shenong Ben Cao Jing, you basically had uh, a long history of Materia Medica texts where original knowledge was often supplemented or added to. Around the fifth century, you had uh, Tao Hongjing's work that was an annotated addition to the Shenong Ben Cao Jing. The original Shennong Ben Cao Jing contained 365 medicinals, and Tao Hongjing made further additions to it and further commentary on it. And he sort of established a pattern of scholarship that, that, exempl that was exemplified throughout the later Chinese literature, where uh, the original text, the knowledge that had come before that was being transcribed in this book was printed with, was written with one color ink, and then his own annotations were written with a different colored ink. And as printing developed, they used, uh, they maintained that difference by using different type sizes. And so Chinese medicine accumulated a long history of scholarship where it would preserve the previous works that came before it while adding new ideas, adding new comments, clarifying confusion. And that really reached a pinnacle in the Ming Dynasty with uh, Li Shuzhen, the author of the Ben Cao Gangmu. Uh, ben Cao Gangmu had uh, 1,892 substances. It was sort of using mater Materia Medica, Chinese medicine theory, as a lens to classify the natural world as a whole. Li Shijian made a sort of a novel classification system, all different items throughout nature, and he used the Chinese medicine theory to to evaluate those substances. And so he kind of embodied that classical uh, scholarship uh, while also incorporating field research and um, Li Shijian not only combined traveling in the field, acquiring new knowledge, and reading the, the classical text, but uh, Li Shijian was very much a critical thinker and reevaluated material that came before him, was constantly trying to make corrections and improvements. <clears throat> and uh, Li Shijian was a, a Renaissance figure. In fact, this is the 500th anniversary of Li Shijian's birth. Uh, this year, there's a very large celebration in his hometown in China coming up on May 26th to celebrate him. But in Europe, what was going on uh, around the same time period was a flourishing of herbal medicine text started to happen also in the Renaissance period. Before the Renaissance, actually, much of herbal medicine knowledge in Europe was very closely rooted in Dioscorides, which was one of the earliest fundamental Greek texts um, around 2,000 years ago, a similar time period as like the Shenong Ben Cao Jing and the Huang Dinajing of Chinese medicine. And 
the Dioscorides was sort of uh, a constant uh, stable text that was extensively used throughout uh, early European herbal medicine. And then during the Middle Ages, European herbal medicine uh, sort of uh, fell into a period of time that was affected by the Dark Ages. A lot of European knowledge ended up being preserved in the Arabic world and then uh, brought back from the Arabic world back into Europe. Hmm. And around the Renaissance period, you started having different authors using languages other than Latin, using the what were considered at the time the vulgar languages, you know, German, English, the common spoken languages of the people to record herbal medicine knowledge. And that started to produce a big flourishing in the Renaissance. So from pretty much the Renaissance period of time afterwards, the materia medica literature in both cultures was, was quite developed. And there was a lot of exchange of medicinal materials between the cultures. And and you also had the third pillar, I guess, which would have been India, or was that included in the in in what you just said? Well, uh, historically, a lot of the trade between India and Europe was linked through uh, through the, the the through Arabic traders. Okay. And in a similar situation, the Arabic traders were also a key link between the trade between uh, China and Europe. And so the Silk Road uh, trade. Uh, incorporated to some degree both Indian goods as well as Chinese goods. But the Silk Road is, was especially like a route of trade between China uh, across to the Middle East. Mm. Uh, India and China directly, they had, uh, even though they're very close geographically, historically the, the Himalayas were a very significant barrier. So when you right. think about when Buddhism uh, went from India to China, one of the first people in the Tang Dynasty to bring a lot of those original fundamental Indian sutras over from India to China. Uh, it took him 27 years to make the journey. And uh, it was a very difficult journey to cover, to cross the Himalayas directly. So a lot of the items from India entered Chinese medicine via sea. So a lot of the things that we see in Chinese medicine, uh, some of the things that were traditionally called like a guang, for example, guang mushiang, the mushiang aklandia or sasaria, was traditionally a medicine that came from India and was imported from India into China uh, via sea. And so the Chinese called it guang mushiang because it came from the southern trading hub of Guangzhou. Nowadays, when we talk about mushiang, we call it yun mushiang because that plant was successfully cultivated in Yunnan province in China, and now Yunnan province is the major production area for mushiang. But you have many examples of items that definitely tra traveled from India to China, uh, and there was definitely an exchange of medical ideas, but um, oftentimes you find that in uh, you know, in, in India, they think a lot of exchange of medical ideas from India to China, and China they think a lot of exchange of medical ideas, China to India. Yeah. It's basically, I, I think both cultures were constantly interacting and from, a, from an early time, but only with a relatively small number of individuals that actually made the journey. Mm -hmm. It's so interesting that we, you know, I'm just listening to you talk about the different regions and thinking about, you know, the, the development of herbal medicines of, you know, like Ayurveda or, or Chinese medicine or, or like the South American uh, herbs and, and how these all develop and, and get, get shared, you know, over time. And that kind of brings us, you know, to where we are today, you see this, this cross sharing of, of herbal medicines. And, you know, I want to kind of get to that later, you know, how, you know, in, in peak performance, how we're seeing these being utilized with athletes and, you know, people that are just trying to enhance their lives or live longer. And that kind of brings me to the next question I have for you, you know, talking about the different classes of herbs and maybe, you know, before we even depart into that, it's difficult to, 
to springboard forth without really talking about ginseng. And, you know, because I think most of the public knows of ginseng as being like this amazing herb. And we know it in Chinese medicine for having multiple uses, but it was really, you know, maybe you can tell us a little bit about the history of, of Renchen, Hong Renchen, Bai Renchen, you know, the different kinds of Renchen, the ginseng and, and how they were used. And, and, you know, what is, is it myth? Is it, you know, fact. I mean, we know as practitioners what it, what they do therapeutically, but maybe share a little bit about that. Yeah, so the question of ginseng is a very good question. Ginseng has an extremely uh, rich cultural history behind it. And so uh, one of the first things that we can say about ginseng is it touches a lot on the issue of natural resources. Historically, most ginseng was uh, wild ginseng, an early formative period of Chinese medicine. And wild ginseng grows extremely slowly. Mm. And in fact, one of the ancient names for uh, renshen, renshen, and, uh, the character for the shen that we use in, in renshen, this is a word generally ascribed to like medicinal roots, uh, and ginseng in particular, uh, that original character was in the bronze script was sort of a pictograph that illustrated the the fruit and the and the root of the ginseng but in early texts we find mention that the ginseng from a, a, a region that, we, that no longer produces ginseng in modern day called uh, Shangdang okay. uh, a region uh, that was cited in Tao Hongjin's 6th century work he said that the best ginseng comes from this region in uh, what's now modern day uh, Shandong uh, Shanxi province um, so this re this uh, Shangdang region, modern day uh, Changzhou of Shanxi, uh, this area uh, no longer has any ginseng growing there. Mm -hmm. um, but uh, it was uh, the for at one time you could tell from the historical literature you have botanical illustrations of the ginseng plant uh, that clearly indicate that it was growing in that part of China. Mm. And the character Shen, besides for being a pictograph of the ginseng plant itself, one of the alternate characters used for ginseng was uh, a word that also pronounced Shen, but very, means very slow growing. Mm. Uh, the Ren in the character ginseng uh, means human. And that's because it said that the root had a, a human-like shape. And so you can find ginseng roots with a remarkable similarity to the human shape. Um, they're extremely, extremely rare uh, mm. to find the wild Chinese ginseng roots with a human shape anymore. To find any genuine wild ginseng at all is extremely rare. Uh, wild ginseng was nearly, well, would have probably gone extinct, uh, extinct in the wild uh, in the past had it not been for about a 200-year period of time uh, where the, the Chinese emperors cut off access to the ancestral homeland of Jin, like the, the the natural territory of ginseng was regarded as their ancestral homeland the Qing emperors came from Manchuria and actually the the fall of the Ming dynasty and the rise of the Qing dynasty itself was somewhat related to to ginseng because the people that from the the, Manch the Manchurians who, who became the rulers in the Qing dynasty accumulated a tremendous amount of wealth from selling the wild ginseng to the Ming aristocrats. <laughs> and that was actually a factor in allowing them to have the power to overtake the, the entire empire of China. And it was also a uh, ginseng collection was also a factor in like the delineation between uh, 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 China and what's now North Korea, because the area right between China and North Korea around Changbai Mountain was um, a sacred homeland to the Manchurian people. 
And during the Qing dynasty, for about 200 years, that area was uh, cut off from the common people. So you, you would be executed if you went in to harvest ginseng there. Wow. And the region that basically marked that execution line ended up influencing what became the border between, uh, between China and, and Korea. Amazing. And so uh, there was a, a long time where only the emperor's troops were allowed to go hunt for wild ginseng. And at that point in time, by the Qing dynasty, the area for wild ginseng had pretty much shrunken to only being that area around Changbai Mountain, close to in northeastern China, close to the Korean border. But from the textual evidence, the early botanical illustrations, we can see that actually ginseng existed on a larger geographic region, all the way from the ancient region that was called Shangdang over to what what they called at the time the Aodong, the the northeastern. Uh, part of China that encompasses Manchuria and then over into into Siberia and so originally ginseng had a somewhat broader uh, home uh, geographic range but mm -hmm. in the in the, the Gang Mu Li Shujin reports that the ginseng due to over collection and environmental damage had already gone extinct mm -hmm. in the Shangdong region by the time he was writing about 500 years ago. Wow. The ginseng in a way it tells us a lot of history about the need to preserve natural resources. And it also illustrates the evolution of Chinese medicine from primarily relying on wildcrafted materials in the early stage to uh, often utilizing cultivation of materials for you know, sustainable supply in the modern era. Yeah. And the issue you mentioned, Hongshen and, uh, and Bairenshen, and part of that story really kind of begins in Korea. It's thought that the cultivation of ginseng originally started to advance in Korea mm -hmm. uh, early on around the Song Dynasty. Uh, you had periods of time where uh, Korea and China had a had a relationship where Korea was required to to give tribute, and one of the tribute items uh, to, that was required to prevent war was ginseng. And so there was a lot of pressure on Korea to meet its quotas for uh, ginseng production. Mm -hmm. And as the uh, natural ginseng, as the wild ginseng reserves started to become more depleted, people started to cultivate the roots, transplant the immature roots into cultivation mm -hmm. and cultivate it. And the development of Hongshen, the red processed form of ginseng, what we call red ginseng instead of white ginseng. Yeah. The development of Hongshan actually uh, came about originally as a preservation method to prevent damage from insects and mold as the ginseng was shipped from Korea to China. And so Hongshan actually started off as a preservation technique. Wow. And uh, during my uh, PhD research, one of the things I was looking at was the historical changes in Chinese medicines. Mm -hmm. And one of the items that we looked at was ginseng. We had a really rich collection uh, that had been preserved in London of specimens of ginseng over the last 200 years or so. They had over uh, 50 different specimens and you could see ginseng preparations from Japan, from Korea, from China, uh, white ginseng, red ginseng, and uh, dongyangshen, which is a, a Japanese processing method of ginseng where they're using parboiling of the root. You mm -hmm. could see basically the same preparation methods that we use for ginseng today were mm -hmm. already in use in the late 1800s, mm -hmm. and the root material of the late 1800s is remarkably similar to the cultivated root material that we have today. Okay. I guess the main difference now is that you start to have, a, in addition to normal field cultivation, now you start to have a little bit more extensive uh, practice of people doing half-wild cultivation, where they're trying to grow gin ginseng in, the, in a wild simulated environment. Are they are, in, the, in the Shanxi province or the Shandong province where it was first grown? 
or mm. or because I know they're trying to grow it in America too. And actually, can you speak a little bit to that? The uh, the obviously we know that the regions where the medicinal substances are grown play a big part in their therapeutic values, right? And their and their active constituents. Mm. Well, I, th I think that if you were going to look at, at ginseng and compare, uh, you know, look at the feasibility of growing ginseng in different ecosystems, mm -hmm. uh, then on the one hand, you have um, some some evidence that it's it's uh, difficult to grow good ginseng in in different environments. Um, uh, for example, you had uh, some early experiments in the 1970s in China where they tried to grow ginseng in um, southern China. Uh -huh. And the root would grow, and it would get very large and fat, but it was almost like a turnip. It had very uh -huh. little uh, flavor or potency and, and um, you know, virtually no medicinal value. So people discontinued it. No body, um, no, body no head? Just, yeah, just it was basically just turned into like a big, uh, a big radish. It looked, it looked big and fat, but it was just full of, you know, water or something. Large, not much uh, saponage. Um, that said, they have uh, some some researchers have reported that uh, they've been able to get good ginsenicide yields off growing ginseng hydroponically. So there may be wow. totally different ways that ginseng can be grown than people have done it in the past that haven't yet been systematically researched. But, that would make sense. Uh, but you could definitely look at American ginseng as a good example of one where uh, the plant was successfully transplanted out of its original ecosystem. Mm -hmm. um, but also American ginseng shows a little bit of the imperfections in that. So if you look at the original homeland of American ginseng, mostly in the, the cold parts of uh, the Eastern US and Canada, mm -hmm. um, uh, mostly in the East, the ginseng mm -hmm. has now been, American ginseng has been successfully cultivated on the, on the West side in uh in washington and in uh and in british columbia okay. the material grown in british columbia compared to the material grown in ontario are still a little bit different macroscopically mm. and then american ginseng also been successfully cultivated in china um, both in northeastern china as well as in the in northern china in the area around beijing mm -hmm. and the area around beijing actually produces slightly higher quality typically than the than the area around the northeast so within even within china you can find certain regions that seem to be more suited to it yeah. um but there's definitely good quality american ginseng that has been successfully grown in china so in the past you would be able to sort of uh clearly identify the american ginseng grown in uh, canada or wisconsin from that grown in china Mm -hmm. um, but the gap in quality is getting closer and closer as the cultivation technique advances. So I think it's largely a question of, you know, people used to think you would never be able to go grow good wine outside of the old European production regions. Right. You know, places like Napa have demonstrated that if you have the right varieties, the right techniques, the right environment, you know, yeah, you can't say geography doesn't matter because Napa is better than San Diego when it comes to wine. Yeah. You couldn't say that the, that the skill and the art can still be successfully adapted. Yeah, even down in Baja California, there's this Valle de Guadalupe, which is this little, mm. this little temperate in valley that grows incredible wines. But mm. anyway, so uh, so we've learned a bit about ginseng, and and I think that um, you know for our listeners that that was a really great historical context. And um, you know, I'm curious now about, uh, and I'm sure our listeners will be curious about the the other uh, other herbs and varieties um, in this category. You know, what would you call this category? Emperor herbs, or we have a we have a, a, a traditional name for the, the the strata of herbs, right? So, what are some other uh, emperor type herbs? Well, well, um, I mean, I think if we think about sort of ton you know tonics in general, uh, yeah. I think maybe 
when you think of like superior, middle, and inferior herbs, it kind of brings to mind this three-tiered classification system of the Shenong Ben Cao Jing, which in uh, some cases, you know, uh, holds true in the modern day. In some cases, it you know, you have some herbs that are extensively uh, used that would be in a lower position, Shenong Ben Cao, and then others that are in a high position, Shenong Ben Cao, but not that extensively used today. So, mm-hmm. um, but if we think about what are the most important tonics in Chinese medicine, then uh, certainly, of course, ginseng is one of the first ones that comes to mind. Mm-hmm. Um, another one would be astragalus. Okay. Astragalus is also an item that uh, that has a kind of an interesting uh, side story. Um, since a lot of your listeners are Chinese medicine practitioners, a lot of them may already be familiar with the basic Chinese medicine actions of astragalus. Mm-hmm. Many of the people that are probably listening from the general public or familiar with astragalus for its effects on Im- the immune system and, and other modern research that's been done on it. But it's, it's an interesting um, <clears throat> side note that historically you actually have plants from two different genera that have been grouped together as uh, Huangqi uh, oh. in history. And um, a lot of, uh, I know Greg, you studied Chinese medicine quite a while ago. Mm-hmm. Um, probably the edition of Bensky that we used at the time that you were studying, the time that I was originally studying, we learned the names Astragalus and Hadeocera. They would right. say Astragalus su Hadeoceri, yeah. meaning either Astragalus or Hadeocera. Um, or Membranosa. We very rarely encounter yeah. Hadeocera. Mm-hmm. But the thing that's really interesting is that, like in my, um, after I graduated at Pekin, I moved to Taiwan over. Over the last uh, 15 years or so, I've spent about 10 years in Taiwan, and uh, I've uh, I started doing off uh, originally studying a hospital there, and being I've always been really interested in herbal pharmacies. So mm-hmm. I went to a lot of different herbal pharmacies, and I realized that actually all the neighborhood pharmacies in Taiwan, none of them have Huangqi like we're used to in America. So in America, uh, our uh, we tend to mostly either import the herbs directly from China, or we have a lot of herbal medicines imported from Hong Kong. Mm-hmm. And uh, in Hong Kong, they tend to only primarily use astragalus. And in, in the US, we tend to pretty much only use astragalus. But in Taiwan, uh, they very, very rarely use astragalus as huangqi. Um, the, you can get astragalus made into the, by large granule companies. But if you right. go, or you could get it if you go specifically to the herbal medicine district, mm-hmm. seek out astragalus versus hadeocera, then it is possible to buy astragalus in Taiwan. But if you just go to your local neighborhood herb shop, all of them uh, pretty much universally have hadeocera and not astragalus. And hadeocera has a very similar look to astragalus. Um, the Chinese pharmacopoeia grouped them together, mm-hmm. both under the name Huangqi until the year 2000. <laughs> and they separated them into Huangqi and Hongqi, Hongqi mm. which would be red, um, red astragalus. The, so being a little bit warmer, the, the, perhaps. Because it has a, a reddish cortex, okay. um, whereas Huangqi has a more yellowish cortex. Mm. But the two of them look very similar, um, mm. and they have a similar taste, except Hongqi has a slightly sweeter taste. Okay. And so Hongqi in Taiwan, a lot of people think Hongqi is the better one if you're making chicken soup. Yeah. If you're making medicinal food, then, then Hongqi actually has a better taste. Mm. If you're using it for medicine, then a lot of people say, well, astragalus has the most, uh, the most extensive amount of clinical use and the most evidence behind it. But actually, when uh, my teacher did some uh, pharmacognosy research where they looked at uh, Huangqi and Hongqi, and they uh, looked at a variety of different uh, effects on the immune system, mm-hmm. and both of them had a very strong activity, but with slightly different effects. So for uh, anybody who's interested in that paper, we could 
uh, submit the link or I could put up the link at, uh, at my website at legendaryabs.com. But we've got the all of the very nice details about breaking down these two medicinals that were traditionally used interchangeably. Oh, that'd be uh, great. So astragalus is, a, is one that also has a bit of an interesting story. And then, of course, you've got uh, others that are very famous and popular right now, like uh, reishi mushroom or right. goji berry, things that are really uh, hitting a lot of attention. And then uh, we also met, um, mentioned some of the things with ginseng. You have some of the other things that are sort of sometimes called ginsengs that aren't actually true ginsengs. Um, typically, a typical case being a Siberian ginseng, erythrocytosis. Right. Yeah, I wanted to. I actually wanted to ask you about that because that was that came to some critical acclaim I think back in the 70s as, is mm. that if, as I remember with the Soviet Union and the Olympic team using that as, as um, an adaptogen helping their athletes train for longer hours recover quicker with less effects to the strenuous workouts um, I don't know if you recall that or mm. you didn't need if you came across that in any of your research mm. um, but that sort of that sort of piqued my interest um, in the use of Siberian ginseng, actually, early in my in my practice, I was using it quite a bit, just as a as a supplement for people, just kind of to, to see how it uh, how it worked, you know, clinically. Um, do you have any experience with the Siberian ginseng, or yeah, you know, I think that the the story of uh, Eleuthero or Siberian ginseng is actually uh, kind of a fundamental piece of this whole adaptogen story. Yeah. Um, around the time that uh, people started uh, using the, the term adaptogen, sort of a substance that kind of uh, has a broad, uh, broad adaptogenic effects. Right. It really started around that time when people were doing a lot of that early research on Siberian ginseng uh, in Soviet Union. Um, you know, a lot of research on Panix ginseng also in that era. So you have um, people giving, you know, something like Panix ginseng, giving it to mice and seeing, okay, it in, improves their ability to, to adapt to, you know, a hot environment, cold environment, hot environment, cold environment, adapts their ability, it improves their ability to prolong their swimming time, prolongs their running time, all that improves their cognitive performance, basically their maze retention, their maze time, all of these things where they're basically giving um, a substance to the animal and the animal is generally outperforming their peers on a variety of different parameters. Right. So that concept of like adaptogen really started off, you know, really got a lot of traction and started in the seventies. Mm -hmm. And uh, the Chinese medicine take on, um, on uh, Siberian ginseng on Eleutherococcus sentiacosis is actually kind of a, kind of an interesting story. So, uh, Originally, Chinese medicine only used Chinese names to, to name the plants. It wasn't really until uh, the early 20th century um, that they started systematically using Latin names to identify plants and figuring out which Latin botanical names correspond to the traditional Chinese drug names. Right. And so that uh, trend really started uh, around 1905 when a, a doctor named uh, Zhao Yuhuang was one of the first people from Ch a Chinese scholar who went to Japan studied pharmacognosy. In the late 1800s, pharmacognosy as a Western science became uh, popular. It was brought over as a, uh, from the Dutch, and then uh, the discovery of ephedrine from Mahuang, led by the Japanese in the late 1800s, led to a huge push towards like pharmacognosy and identifying new drugs from natural compounds and new drugs from uh, traditional medicines. And the person who brought that uh, scientific discipline of pharmacognosy over to China, uh, Zhao Yuhuang was sort of, he started off a medical journal, 
Chijo Medical Journal that started off first was the main place to systematically use Latin names to try to clarify which botanicals were used. And one of the ones that's uh, an interesting case is the one with uh, Luthrococcus indicosis. So this material we nowadays in Chinese medicine call it suujia. Um, and suujia is an item that doesn't have a very extensive history in the bensal literature. Um, actually, the item that has the more extensive history in the bensal literature is wujiapi. And wujiapi, we now know it as Acanthopanax grassostylis. And its name in the Chinese pharmacopoeia today specifically just refers to that one species. Um, however, uh, wujiapi historically uh, likely included multiple species within the Acanthopanax genus. Mm. And the whatever traditional history of use of tsuujia there was in Chinese medicine was probably largely done under the, the, under the heading of wujiapi. Mm. It wasn't really used as its own herb as a distinct medicine mm. um, much until the latter part of the 20th century. Mm. Uh, the Chinese paid attention to the early Russian research that was coming up out about Eleutherococcus entucosis, and then they realized that they had a, a lot of natural resources of the same plant in China. It was a new medicinal material that could be developed, and they started looking towards it as a source for like new drug development and then for new medicinal material resource exploitation. So Chinese medicine really didn't start using Siberian ginseng until the modern era, inspired by that same Soviet research that you were inspired by. Interesting, yeah. Are there any, um would that be considered a banned substance, I wonder, in, in uh, the Olympic, like the, with the International Olympic Committee uh, well, these the, days? Or, I'm I, not I entirely know. sure about that, but the main concern with it is that you have um, uh, several other plants in the Acanthopanax genus. So mm -hmm. Eleutherococcus and Acanthopanax, some, some botanists will call the, this plant one, one name or the other, but right. you have several plants in the Acanthopanax genus that are sold as suja, mm -hmm. um, that are not the genuine species. And so the main issue with, uh, with suja in the Chinese market is an issue of identif proper identification and using the correctly identified material. Mm -hmm. um, because the name uh, tsu means spiny, and what you see is that a lot of other very spiny materials are sold from the Canthopanax genus are sold as suja. The genuine material actually has very few spines, and it's got somewhat limited natural resources. So historically, the root was used, in, um, but over time it's become the root as well as stem. And because the stem is uh, cheaper to grow and sustainably harvest mm -hmm. than to dig up the root, most of the material on the market now is stem material rather than root material. And then a lot of the material on the market that's sold as suja is not actually the, the correct species, but these other more spiny acanthopanics. Uh, and some of those do appear to have pharmacologic activity, but some of them may also have um, uh, glycosides and other, uh, other compounds of concern for, for safety. So uh, with suja, the most important thing is having correctly identified material. I'm not aware of it actually being... Uh, uh, being banned for sports performance though. Mm -hmm. Okay, okay. So we've been talking quite a bit about the, this class of verbs, the, the superior class of verbs, and, and we could go on and on. There, there are many others, right? I mean, we didn't mention cordyceps, and you know, there's, there's a host of others. And, and maybe you know, feel free to bring up any others that you're particularly fond of or interested in. But in, in, traditional, in, in our traditional Chinese medicine, 
um, maybe enhancing performance isn't just giving these, say, adaptogenic type of herbs or superior type of herbs, but we have an entire classification, right, per the, per the Shenong uh, that, you know, and you alluded to this, that stratis stratify different treatment methods that, that may enhance a person's health, you know, to, you know, to do various things before you're giving them this, this type of herb that, you know, is specifically um, promoting physical performance or mental, uh, mental, you know, cognitive performance. So maybe can you talk a little bit about that? Uh, the, the strata, you know, like maybe you've got a clear damp, for example, before you get into tonifying or, or invigorate the blood, like maybe we use sanchi or something like that. Well, I, I think that uh, most uh, practitioners of Chinese medicine would generally agree that the, the ideal th therapy for improving any one person's cognitive ability is going to uh, vary depending on their constitution. So overall, the 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 best possible way way to go about it would be for a person to see a Chinese medicine practitioner so that they have a clear understanding of what is their constitution like in Chinese medicine. Because somebody who has poor cognitive ability because they suffer from dampness and they don't have clear thinking is going to require a different type of therapy than somebody who has poor cognitive ability because they have blood deficiency and they're and they're not they don't have enough nourishment to the head. Right. Two people need a two totally different styles of treatment. And so ultimately there's no substitute for that type of pattern differentiation. Uh, that being said, there are some herbal medicines that are, you know, significantly uh, powerful and perceptible. Um, mm -hmm. The one that I've personally found to be the most perceptible in terms of something that I would say cognitive function would be uh, Panix ginseng, Rensha. Mm -hmm. um, and I find that ginseng, when I take it consistently, it makes me think a little bit clearer. Mm -hmm. It makes me, uh, my mood a little bit better. It makes my you know, stamina just a little bit stronger on all these very small ways. You know, it doesn't, I don't feel really particularly more energy or it's like any sort of short-term boost, like as if I had drinking a cup of coffee. But I noticed that over weeks or over time, you know, I start to just be a little bit, you know, the same Eric, but just a little bit better. All yeah. the different tasks start to be just a little bit better. And so I think that to me, that's probably one of the things that strikes me as something that where there really is some true perceptible cognitive benefit. Mm -hmm. um, but the, that aside, I, I would uh, say that I would caution us to sort of remember that our understanding of this stuff and the, pharmacolo the pharmacology is really constantly evolving because right. uh, for much of the time in the past, people looked at ginsenicides as the key active ingredients of ginseng. Mm -hmm. And ginsenicides are, are saponins that have significant pharmacologic activity. And the different prominence of these different ginsenicides is one of the key differentiating features between uh, closely related herbs like uh, American ginseng xiangshan, mm -hmm. uh, panix ginseng renshen, noto ginseng sanxi. Mm -hmm. um, they all have ginsenicides, but they have them in different different ginsenicides in different proportions and different ratios. Um, it's also similar differences between renshen, uh, hong renshen, and bai renshen, the white and the red processed forms. They differ in their ginsenicides uh, that 
occur, then that occurs due to the steam to the changes from the steaming tech, uh, when the, when the root is steamed. Um, but so most of the past research has always focused on ginsenosides. Mm-hmm. Now it's starting to they're, they're starting to realize that there's also a lot of polysaccharides in ginseng that may be of interest that weren't being previously investigated. So the polysaccharides tend to be the, these long uh, these long chain molecules that are difficult to uh, in terms of the chemical analysis, it's difficult to, it, or it's it's expensive and time consuming to isolate and quantify and characterize uh, these polysaccharides. Um, and because many of the polysaccharides don't uh, enter the bloodstream, a lot of times uh, in the past, a lot of people had dismissed them um, in terms of being like key markers for the pharmacologic activity of a root like ginseng. Uh, but now they're discovering that the ginseng root seems to have effects on the gut microflora. And so it may be that uh, some of these things that previously weren't investigated and, the, and many other tonic herbs like uh, dendrobium mm. are also very rich in polysaccharides, same with uh, huangqi. So mm. some of these items, um, we may have, have been overlooking some potentially therapeutic uh, active compounds uh, just by... Uh, overlooking and not not having a clear understanding of the gut microbiota and, and not having uh, complex integrated enough uh, you know pharmacological discovery tools to to to, to see all the the network relationships in these complex systems. It's interesting that you mentioned the gut biome, and that makes sense when you think about ginseng. You think about the you know the entering meridians, you know the, the lung and spleen and stomach, right? What mm-hmm. else? Kidney. Mm-hmm. I'm forgetting, but. Mm-hmm. Um, it makes sense that uh, that that would stimulate better better uh, thinking, you know, improved health, improved stamina. If you relate it to the gut biome, uh, I'm sure there are more there are more systems that it that it influences as well. I'm surprised, or maybe there is some um, pharmacologic some uh, uh, like pharmaceutical. Or have there been pharmaceutical advents from ginseng or? Uh, oh, well, there have been a, there's been a, you know, a tremendous amount of, there's been thousands of uh, scientific papers published on ginseng. So there's a, in terms of a item that has, there's going to be more research on, you know, cognitive effects and performance enhan- enhancing effects on ginseng than almost any other uh, herbal medicine. But it's also interesting to, to uh, when you look at the, the Chinese scientific literature, you know, in the West, a lot of people uh, think of something like ginseng as being okay. This this thing gives you energy, and they try to research it like it's a magic bullet. And thinking right. the thing that will improve cognitive performance or athletic performance is something that will give you energy. Yeah. But actually, uh, if you look at the a lot of the the things that have been researched in China for clinical trials for like cognitive performance on on exam performance, mm-hmm. a lot of them are actually calming. Items, mm-hmm. things like swan, you know, things based on uh, Tianwang Bushindang, Swanzhou things yeah. that are based on like uh, calming spirit, sure. and that actually makes sense because you have a lot of when a person needs peak mental performance for an exam, mm-hmm. oftentimes they have already studied, and yeah. what they need is to have a, a calm and focused mental state. Mm-hmm. So you know, if they have too much coffee, they could actually perform poorly on the test because they're a little bit too wired. Yeah, that makes sense. If they don't have enough coffee, maybe they'll pour, perform poorly. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. yeah, yeah, they're, <clears throat> yeah. You bring up coffee. We haven't even talked about coffee in this. What, what do you think about coffee anyway? In this, I mean, it's an herb. Well, you it's know, a, I think it's uh, an abused coffee herb. Is, 
it, it, coffee is a is a definitely a botanical substance with a long cultural history of use in clear yeah. pharmacology. Uh, it, I'm a big fan of a really delicious cappuccino myself. So yeah, different different effect from Renchen or or yeah, to me shooting, it's totally different effect. Yeah, I find very little in the way of like a, a short term increase of energy in Renchen. Mm. What I find when I take Renchen is that I feel a little bit more. My energy is a little bit more sustained. Yeah, I don't, you don't have the peak and valley. Yeah, of the, I don't of necessarily, like, when I drink a cup of coffee, I notice the change in energy right away. Sure. When I take ginseng, it's more that if I take it consistently over a couple of weeks, I start mm -hmm. thinking, you know, I feel different now mm -hmm. than I did a few weeks ago. Yeah. I think it's really important to reiterate what you were saying about, you know, the, the person's nature, you know, because I think a lot of our listeners and just people I know in general, they're, they're, they're equating, you know, herbs uh, for performance to stimulants like caffeine that you would get from coffee or tea. So what you said earlier is really important. And I, I think that, you know, people need to really understand that and to have guidance around it you know i mean i know you and i both see patients that come in with sacks and lists of things that they're taking to kind of try and find the you know the therapeutic the right therapeutic hum from all these different you know vitamins or minerals and supplements and and um you know i think that's more of a kind of a western herbalist approach to things too right which we haven't really talked about the differences in in the kind of eastern approach uh, to the Western approach. So maybe talk a little bit about that. that that's kind of a beautiful thing. How, how the Chinese, um, how the Chinese medicine works compared to like Western prescribing of herbs. Well, Chinese medicine is pretty much always dependent on the, on uh, polypharmacy. So Chinese medicine almost always using multiple substances together in, uh, in uh, a formula, a formula often customized for each individual patient. Um, with, Western herbal medicine, you would say Western herbal medicine today is, has largely grown out of modern science and pharmacognosy. And so if we think about historically how uh, Chinese medicine evolved, the, the style of diagnosis and the use of herbal medicines based on classical formulas, uh, nature, taste, uh, traditional Chinese medicine actions and traditional relationships with other herbal medicines, uh, that fundamental paradigm is largely unchanged over the last several thousand years. Yeah. It's sort of been continually refined, continually expanded, and it's continually evolved. But a lot of the same fundamental principles that guide Chinese medicine today were established almost 2,000 years ago. And uh, the situation with Western herbal medicine is a little bit different because Western herbal medicine historically also had uh, things like tastes and properties. They would describe, you know, uh, a, an herb as being warm to the third degree, or they would describe uh, the nature, the, they would use the, 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 the taste, taste of herbs to be correlated with, with properties. So there was actually a history in, in uh, Western herbal medicine of, of viewing herbs based on uh, temperature, uh, flavor. Mm -hmm. um, but over time, like Western herbal medicine, the, 
the challenge with Western herbal medicine was that it, it lost its continuity. Uh, and initially, you had an early period of time where uh, when Dioscorides and some of the fundamental works were created. But then when we mentioned before, you had this dark ages when, um, when uh, herbal medicine largely, uh, you know, fell out of, uh, you know, fell out of further development until the Renaissance period. Mm -hmm. And then um, in the 1800s, you had, uh, as pharmacognosy developed as a science, here you're starting to have like the, the integration of botany. Mm -hmm. where you have, uh, you know, botany emerging as a science, you have the discipline of chemistry emerging, you have the integration of these different sciences together with medicine. And uh, one of the first big innovations there around, uh, you know, in the very early 1800s was the isolation of, of morphine from the opium poppy. And so the opium poppy had a long history of use uh, worldwide in Europe, across the uh, the Middle East, all the way over to uh, China, India, you had a long history of use of poppy as a, a painkiller. Um, but it wasn't until they were able to isolate morphine from it and make basically the first um, pure alkaloid to be isolated from a natural material. That sort of started off, you had this this time as they were distilling uh, distilling alcohol and trying to sort of, you had this quest to find like the spiritual essence of yeah. Right. And that's why we call alcohol spirits, right? That right. was part of this quest to find, to separate like the, the refined from the crude and the base in nature. Mm. And so the idea that you could find a, a single molecule that would have the effect of the, of the whole, it was a, a huge advancement in early chemistry. And in the early 1800s, they isolated many uh, of of the famous early alkaloids. You had things like atropine from, uh, from Datura, you had uh, and henbane, you had things like nicotine from tobacco. You had all of these famous uh, single compounds started to become isolated. Mm -hmm. And medicine gradually moved from being like, you had um, something like aconite, where aconite had a long history of use in uh, Western herbal medicine. But uh, aconite, for much of its early history, was only regarded as poison. Mm. It was only once they started using it in really, really extremely controlled dosages that they started using it as a medicine. Um, but rather than in, in China, aconite had been used as a medicine since early period of time. But in China, they basically applied the same type of principles of cooking to the preparation of medicinal substances. And they discovered that using heat would greatly reduce the toxicity of aconite. And so by preparation methods, or what they call powder in Chinese medicine, they were able to control the toxicity of aconite enough that it was able to be used internally and develop as an internal medicine from an early time period in Chinese medicine. It, aconite didn't start to become used internally in the Western medicine until like really in the 1700s. Hmm. And then it was used in extremely small doses. And so when, uh, you had this uh, natural variable potency of the natural material, uh, which really, you know, if you look at something like uh, like Datura or you look at something like, uh, um, you know, Aconite, they're very classic representative examples of a highly potent substance in nature that in its natural plant source is very variable, very toxic, very dangerous with a very narrow therapeutic range. Yeah. And so being able to isolate something that can be measured and administered in a very pure form that has that medicinal effect without that variability and that other noise within the plant, 
it was regarded as very desirable. But I'd say that maybe Western medicine has gone just one step too far. Like if we looked yeah. at, you know, the previous editions of the, Ameri of the, uh, of the U.S. Pharmacopeia, you know, 100 years ago, the U.S. Pharmacopeia was full of plant-based medicines. Right. But as synthetic medicines evolved, there became less emphasis on plant-based medicines. And now I think science is sort of coming full circle, starting to have more sophisticated uh, methodology and technology and tools and techniques and equipment to measure these complex multi-component uh, medicines and complex biological systems, I think that we're gradually going to start moving back to having much more of a focus on whole plants, natural products, and you know, new drug development in Western medicine is going to start to come back more towards its herbal roots, I'd say. Well, that would be, that would be incredible. Um, yeah, I think uh, as you're talking, I'm thinking about the, the, the standardization of, um, of medicinals that are coming out of Japan these days and how they've really, you know, taken that standardization to the next level. Um, you know, they, I guess they, they look for, they don't look for every component of the plant though. They, they're looking for just particular, um, components and standardizing based on that. Is that your, is, uh, is that your understanding of what they're doing over there? Well, I would say uh, worldwide, both in China as well as Japan, one of the things that they're really starting to focus on is what they would consider to be like the, you know, complex fingerprint. Yeah. And so in the past, um, it's, uh, you have hundreds of different uh, compounds within within even sometimes a single given herb. And then when you have multiple herbs uh, cooked together in a formula, the chemistry becomes extremely complex. Mm -hmm. You have a very difficult challenge for like quality control. For example, for a compo medicine, where you have multi-herb uh, prescriptions mm -hmm. that are being, uh, you, have, you can have a sort of a, a minimum, you can look at multiple different marker compounds and say, okay, we wanna control for a minimum amount of these uh, these marker compounds to verify that the correct herbs were used and that they were used in a sufficient quantity. Yeah. But the overall uh, therapeutic efficacy of that formula, the degree to which it's actually correlated to those marker compounds, uh, is often you know under you know understudied, right? Yeah. Un un yeah. Unknown. Yeah. Because when we look at which things, if you're trying to do quality control testing, one of the first things you need to do is verify mm -hmm. that this is the correct medicinal used. And so right. you're looking at which compounds in a plant are unique, are distinct, are abundant. But some of the things like, for example, the, the pharma, Chinese pharmacopoeia control for, for chuanxiong, it, it tests for a, a compound that's not unique to Chuanxiong, but is oh. abundant in Chuanxiong. Oh. Chuanxiong has a far more unique and highly potent uh, uh, therapeutic marker compound, but it's not economical to test for it. Mm -hmm. Because it occurs in such a small quantity that mm. you don't have enough of it available as like a pure analytical reference standard to compare it to. Mm -hmm. So part of the limitation of what companies can test for is dependent on what library of reference materials they have available. Yeah. And so for if you wanted to try to understand, like let's say you grew um, a Chinese herb and some chaihu in your backyard, and you wanted to understand like its entire chemical profile you may find like commercially available, there's only a few individual cyclosapinins that you could really, that are commercially available as reference materials that you could use 
with HPLC and quantify mm -hmm. the levels of those particular compounds. So you have in any given chromatograph, the fingerprint of a plant, you're going to have a huge number of different peaks and, and compounds. Mm -hmm. You only know the identity of, of a, a certain number of those peaks. And yeah. so now you're starting to have more, um, uh, more profound uh, testing ability. You're starting to have much more stronger ability to do comprehensive quality control. So using some of these things like QTOF mass, they're able to build a complex fingerprint of a given herb. And so they'll take many different batches of Huanglian and uh, feed the computer data of Huanglian samples grown from different parts of China and different regions. Mm -hmm. And over time, the computer can start to recognize patterns that can even help to clarify, okay, which production region did this Huanglian come from? So not only is it Coptis chinensis, this is a particular species, but even what part of China was it grown? Mm -hmm. That's starting to be like the new frontier of complex fingerprinting. Yeah, that's amazing. And then they can they can pair that with therapeutic effects, I guess, presumably with different hospitals or clinics in the in the region and determine, you know, which which products are best suited for which things, I would imagine. Right. Well, yeah, and you've got it's also going to be very useful for uh, in the future for for formula standards, because with formulas, you're trying to figure out you have so many different, you have such a complex matrix of chemicals. Yeah. You want to figure out, like when you're doing the identity testing or quality control testing for a single herb extract, mm -hmm. it's a little bit more straightforward to have a, a validated methodology. Yeah. But when you're dealing with really complex uh, formulas, then, then having that really complex fingerprinting becomes a really profound tool. It's expensive. The the tools you mentioned, the the HPLC and the TLC, those are those are expensive processes too. To do that with every single herb, I mean, that, isn't that pretty pricey? For uh, well, you're definitely going to be spending a few hundred dollars per uh, per test if you had to do it at a, you know at an outside lab or just if you had to fund your own yeah. lab. But yeah. the uh, you know it's pretty routine within Chinese medicine quality control testing to do. Um, uh, HPLC and thin layer chromatography. So yeah. a lot of um, in the Chinese 2015 Chinese pharmacopoeia, you have, you know, well over 100 items that have HPLC uh, constituent minimum requirements. And then you have uh, many, many items that have thin layer chromatography requirements. So basically you find that like for like a large granule company, every single product is getting thin layer chromatography and, mm -hmm. and the HPLC is routine part of their testing. But the part that's, that's the more routine and actually com comparatively cheap part of that. The yeah. part that's the more advanced and the more expensive is this next generation complex multi-fingerprint testing, which is so far mostly used for research rather than routine quality control. I guess that was, I had that as a question for you it's, uh, under identification. Like, how do we know what we're getting anymore? But I think this is answering the question. I mean, you have mm -hmm. obviously the age old, you know, go to the field, look at it, pull it out of the ground. And, you know, if it looks like what you think it looks like, or you can match that with pictures or things like that, but that's one way. But then really looking at, at the, um, at the different scientific, uh, like the HPLC, TLC and the multi-layer, mm -hmm. that's really how we know, right? Yeah, and I think uh, if you've, I believe you might have had some experience visiting herbal factories. So you, you've got a little bit of an exposure to how, how much more advanced the situation is over in Asia when it comes to, oh, yeah. you know, the plant extracts than it is in the States. So yeah. you, um, 
you basically have like a multi-step when it comes to basic identity testing. Yeah. Uh, you, if we think about herbal authentication, you basically sort of have a, a flowchart where the it really begins in the benzal literature and the historical text. Mm. Which plant was the authentic material? And then you have the botanical identification where, you know, in terms of taxonomy, mm-hmm. from a person seeing the live flowering plant. Right. Which species is it? And then you have, uh, because you have, you could have the same uh, species of plant that produces, you know, med- like you having the right species alone is not sufficient, right? You right. also need to have the correct plant part. Right. You also have the correct quality. And so like thin layer chromatography testing is extensive. So you have like macroscopic using the naked senses, looking Mm -hmm. at it, looking at the fractured surface, smelling it, tasting it. This is like the traditional method of identifying. And Chinese medicine evolved a very sophisticated approach to naked sense organoleptic discrimination. So Mm -hmm. with enough experience, um, and the good intact specimens of herbs, a well-trained person can identify a tremendous amount about the, um, the quality, origin, and botanical identity of a Chinese medicine. Yeah. But to be more definitive, or especially for like a, an herbal company where you need to meet GMP requirements, mm-hmm. you have to demonstrate that every identification test in the Chinese pharmacopoeia was completed. Mm-hmm. And so the macroscopic and botanical identification is only one part of that. The next step is the microscopy and then uh, thin layer chromatography and HPLC. Mm -hmm. So you're usually going to be using that basic range of tests on most of the, on most incoming herbal medicines that need to be identified. And you're also going to be doing other quality control testing for things like heavy metals, constituents, pesticides, all that other stuff. Molds, bugs. Well, bugs are going to, bugs are with, bugs die in the cooking process. (laughs) People are so freaked out about bugs. It's like, nah, you know, it's a little bit of protein. (laughs) Yeah. I mean, you know, considering that the average person who consumes herbs or patients or even practitioners, you know, we're not really trained to go out in the field. I wasn't trained to go out in the field and recognize whatever Chuanzhong or, or, yeah. or anything else for that matter. I mean, I can recognize Dongshen because it grows around here kind of, or one thing, but um, you know, most of the times people just buy it. Like I buy my herbs from, from you, they come in a bottle, they're granules. So what, what should people be looking for when they're, when they're looking for a reputable company? Like what does legendary provide for, for people and, or what, you know, what, what should I be looking for when I'm purchasing herbs? Well, I think with uh, I think when it comes to purchasing from herbs, I think the first thing to be aware of is that we have we're lucky to have a really uh, good supply chain in the state. So we have a very good range of companies to choose from. We have several people that are doing uh, raw herbs with uh, very good quality control, very good uh, identification and testing. And so we have like a relatively small number of suppliers uh, that are, I would say, really top tier suppliers. Mm-hmm. But of the ones that really are top tier suppliers, we have some really great choices. So I, yeah. I think that there's, uh, with, with granules, one of the things to be aware of is that granules, there's only a, a relatively finite number of top tier factories in the world that make these types of products. Right. So a lot of the, a lot of the, and of the main companies that are in the U.S., uh, most of them are distributing products from uh, this same relatively short list of top-tier factories in in Taiwan and mainland China. Yeah. Um, and so you tend to have a relatively uh, among these good factories. You know, the basics of 
identity testing, safety, quality control, all of that stuff is actually extremely well controlled. Mm-hmm. When you're getting into more of the, uh, you know, going into some of the really traditional Chinatown style shops, then you start to have to be aware of more issues of uh, custom uh, regional customary substitutes and uh, easily confused Chinese medicines. So if you were to go to the average uh, Chinatown pharmacy pretty much anywhere in the U.S., of the 400 herbs or so that you commonly use, there's about two dozen or so that you want to be aware of certain issues of identification or or quality discernment. Um, so there are a few things to be aware of. I've got a couple uh, articles on the issue of herbal identification. Yeah, that would be great. We're definitely going to link to your website too for more in-depth information about a lot of the topics that we've been discussing today. I, I do want to point out that I think it's really important to mention what you just said about like going into uh, Chinese herb stores and you know oftentimes they have little boxes of the patent medicines that sometimes can be mixed with pharmaceutical substances. Is that still true? Uh, I think that well, it, it's a, it's definitely true that that's historically been a significant uh, problem. It's uh, the degree to which it's prevalent. I would say it definitely exists. Um, the, for me personally, I would tend not to use a lot of those um, small, yeah. inexpensive patent medicines. I would tend yeah. to go more from the, the core main suppliers just because you're in addition to the question of like quality and safety yeah you also need to have a good bang for your buck from you know make sure that the medicine that the money that you're putting towards the medicine is going to give you a good significant therapeutic effect and so i think that raw herbs and granules are the best delivery forms in terms of giving you the you know the value per potency yeah um so we talked a little bit about um, about the sources and where they're grown and, and the sustainability of of uh, herbal medicine. I mean, when I was in China, I was awestruck by the amount of herbs that were going out. Meaning, you know, I looked at the warehouse in in uh, at Tianjin, and you know, it was you've seen it. It's it's four hundred yards long and four stories high, and and that's like three months supply of granules and bo- that was moving out to, you know, how sustainable, uh, is the, how sustainable is it in what, the, with, you know, the demand just in China alone of the Chinese herbs. And now, you know, there's a big movement f- with the Chinese government. We both know they've got these 10 year, he's got these decade plans of, you know, moving medicine westward, if you will these cultural plans to really you know disseminate chinese medicine and get it out there into the world beyond the borders of of asia and southeast asia how sustainable is that you know with the the you know the wild craft that is only so much and then you know the farms can i'm you know do you know i mean is this something that we should be concerned about as an industry uh so that yeah i think the issue of uh natural resources is is one of the fundamentally and in ecology is a fundamental issue for Chinese medicine uh, of the of the herbs that we commonly use in Chinese medicine about uh, 150 to 200 of them are primarily cultivated in origin and so you have uh, most of the items where there's really a large amount of clinical use 
in most cases, those are primarily coming from cultivated sources. Um, and so just simply to meet the, the market requirement. And in some situations, actually more, uh, you know, more consumption creates more production. And okay. so you have some items where, you know, ecologically, it's a very, a very, a very good situation. Like for example, I've been to like Gotong farms in uh, Guangxi province where they're just growing the Gotong all over the mountainside, just mm. growing it in a half wild environment. Oh, nice. Gotong is naturally uh, occurs in the wild environment there, mm -hmm. but it's not really economically in the past throughout most of the history of Chinese medicine, there was enough Gotong that people could just collect it from the wild and because mm. they're just collecting the aerial part of it. The, the plant would stay alive and continue to grow back. Mm -hmm. But as the, as the, you know, the, as time goes on, the amount that Gotong is, it's not worth enough for somebody to go into the forest to, into the field to collect it. It's much more efficient for them to cultivate it. But because it's cultivated, because it grows naturally well in that environment, they can grow it in the wild environment and just cover entire mountainsides with it. And there is a very sustainable approach to cultivation that doesn't really have any particular negative impact. Mm -hmm. In other cases, you have some herbs where you have very high intensity of cultivation requirements. So something like uh, sanchi, notoginseng, mm -hmm. basically extinct from the wild. There's not yeah. a known uh, live plant of, of notoginseng in the wild. Oh. As far as we know, the plant is already virtually extinct outside of cultivation. So where are um, they growing that? Uh, they, they primarily grow it in Yunnan, in uh, Wenshan County. Oh, and so the sense. traditional name of, uh, of Sanxi, one of its names is Tianxi, because it came from a region called Tianzhou mm. in uh, Guangxi, near the border of Yunnan. Mm -hmm. And so basically, like, along that border between uh, Yunnan and Guangxi province has been the traditional region where it's grown. Mm. But most of the Sanxi is grown in a county called Wenshan County in Yunnan. Okay. And the challenge with Sanchi is that it requires a relatively long time for the field to recover after a crop has been grown. So after growing Sanchi, they can't grow Sanchi in the same location mm -hmm. for about 35 years. Oh, and wow. so they have to constantly rotate the land that's being cultivated. Mm. And so they're starting to gradually run out of of premium land to cultivate it. Mm -hmm. But as they grow it in other parts of Yunnan closer to Kunming, they find that it's difficult to achieve the same quality that they get in Wenshan. Mm -hmm. And so uh, for an herb like Sanxi, we're heavily dependent on its cultivation. Mm -hmm. um, but it, its cultivation environment may be in the future running into some finite limits unless people can learn how to grow it and adapt it well to other places. Mm -hmm. But other, this has already been successfully achieved with, with other herbs that were once thought impossible. So something like Tianma mm. was critically endangered um, in the 70s and the entire Chinese medicine market was full of, of counterfeits of all different things like dried potatoes and everything oh, sold as wow. Tianma. But <laughs> nowadays, no, account, acquiring genuine Tianma is not a problem at all because mm -hmm. Tianma is extensively grown. Uh, they just needed to learn how to pair it with a symbiotic, it needs a symbiotic fungus in order to absorb nutrients. So once they learned how to pair it with this, um, this fungal partner, then they were able to successfully grow it. And the same is true with like something like dendrobium orchids for mm -hmm. 
traditionally they were very difficult to cultivate, but now that they've got a cell culture and they were able to grow them in a lab from cell culture, then they're able to grow juvenile plants in a lab and then move them to a, a natural, you know, like a wood, wood chip type of medium and then sell them to farmers to grow them out and then buy them back. So they're able to make these very um, well vertically integrated supply chains for some of these medicines that in some ways is actually, you could say, having a positive ecological benefit causing mm -hmm you know, more causing economic benefits in some of these rural areas and actually causing more of the plant to be cultivated. So, mm -hmm. you know, um, I, I often get questions and I'm sure you get this question all the time too, about the use of pesticides in China and mm. the, the, the quest for organic. Mm. What do you say, what do you say to your customers or to people that are concerned about the use of um, insecticides or pesticides, the, these types of, things in China and is, is that as big of an issue as, as the concern that we hear? Well, it's definitely, a, it's definitely an issue. I think you have certain, uh, uh, sometimes it can be a little bit maybe uh, <clears throat> exaggerated in the public imagination as to the, compared to the, to the real situation, but it's definitely a, a major concern for certain Chinese medicines. So for some items like uh, ginseng, uh, Noto ginseng, uh, chrysanthemum, uh, goji berry. For certain items, you do have um, uh, problems with excessive pesticide use. Most of the items where you have problems with um, pesticides, you also have solutions. So you have good agricultural practice farms for Noto ginseng, you have GAP farms for Renshin, you have organic farms for Renshin, you have organic farms for Uweza, mm -hmm. you have uh, GAP, you have you know uh, low pesticide material, you have a lot of uh, a wide range of, of products that are available on the market. Okay. And so I think that the biggest um, problem tends to be from, uh, let's say you have a lot of the best material on the market is being consumed by large, well-managed companies. So most of the large, well-managed companies, they're you know, they have the equipment to do pesticide testing. They have the capability to buy direct from farms, mm -hmm. the capability to test in the soil. Some of the, some of the companies even have sort of a vertical management from the seed and seedling and soil conditions, controlling the SOPs for the entire cultivation of the plant from start to finish. And so that type of uh, ideal model is the way that the field is gradually, gradually evolving. The problem is that you have all these small family farms uh, that as a, you know, we have a huge demand for more clear supply chains, more standardized links, more thorough, uh, you know, in order to basically have the most control over pesticides, you really need to have control from the farm level. Right. Um, and you need to have the, where the company that's buying the material is is absorb accepting some of the risk from the farmer mm -hmm. and investing in the production of the earth mm -hmm. and so many of the small family farms uh like you, you take an herb like baishao it's grown really extensively in the in the in the area around bojo china we have hundreds and hundreds of small family farms each growing one very small plot of it and then it gets harvested, collected, mixed together, and uh, graded based on its morphological features into different quality grades. 
But because it's coming from multiple farms and it's being mixed together, it's much easier for that material. Like if you had one, one farmer that was growing without pesticides, another that was growing with them, that mm -hmm. material can be mixed together. Mm -hmm. uh, so for the companies that are trying to really avoid uh, pesticides, it's best for them to control it from the farm level. Mm -hmm. The challenge is it's gradually going to cause all of those small family farmers, many of whom have done things organically for generations, gradually it's going to become progressively more difficult for them to compete in a, in a, in a world that favors large producers, standardized links, and you know, strictly controlled supply chains. So there's kind of a, a good and a bad side both to the, the way the herbal medicine world is evolving. Um, my teacher did a relatively extensive project with um, Harvard uh, in the past. And they did uh, they they collected samples of commonly used Chinese medicines using GPS tracking, collecting both wild and cultivated materials, and did a really extensive paper looking at pesticide residues and heavy metals. Interesting. And they found that about uh, about two-thirds of the Chinese medicines that they tested overall had uh, no detectable pesticides. And then um, I'd have to look at the exact statistics, but I think it was something like uh, of the 35% or some that had some detectable ones, you had a very small percentage that was above the limit. Right? And, oh, okay. then, uh, and then some that you have detection, but below, the, but within what would be considered like a safe limit in, in the EU or something. Mm -hmm. And so I would say it's generally not difficult to find there is adequate supply of Chinese herbs that that meet the requirements of, for like the EU for for uh, pesticides and stuff. But you do have to seek out quality sources. Yeah. And I think you mentioned that, you know, the mo most of the main suppliers, for example, where you and I both get our herbs, you know, they have a level of certification from the Chinese government that's I mean, the, the top layer of certification for an industry is the military. The second tier, I think, down is for hospitals and medicinal companies like herbal suppliers and things like that. So, the for example, the, the place where we get our herbs have the highest level of certification. So I feel confident that we, what we get is really high quality and eyes, eyes are really on that. And I know that our FDA goes over there and visits and actually you know, walks through the same plant that you and I walk through to, to look at our quality control. So, but I, I just wanted to ask you that from your experience, because I get that question quite often. Yeah, and oftentimes what you'll find is that you'll have, um, you'll have, uh, you have pesticide testing that's done at the raw material acquisition stage, because it's much cheaper for them to test the herbs that they're considering buying before they've already bought several right. times. Right. So you have the 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 a key element of pesticide testing happens in that original raw material screening stage, mm -hmm. and you also have pesticide testing that's done by the factories on finished products. But mm -hmm. you also have pesticide testing done by, like for example, European distributors. So often, um, because in Europe, a lot of the items that are included in the European pharmacopoeia, they're required to be retested within Europe to demonstrate identity and then pesticide residues. And so oftentimes if you're, you know, we feel lucky that we're able to buy a lot of the same batches that are then being independently tested in Europe for a broad pest, uh, spectrum of pesticides. So you not only have the, the factory testing, but you also have a tier of independent testing going on too. Oh, do we do that in the States? You can, uh, basically there's a, 
Well, yeah, you know, there's labs that have independent testing in the state. So but we don't some... do that. We don't do that before import, though, right? You're saying they do that in the in Europe before in, import. In Europe is a requirement. Yeah. Oh, okay. Yeah, the U the U.S. law around pesticides is actually a little bit challenging because each uh, the U.S. law sets pesticide requirements. Uh, crop they're all crop specific. Mm. And so, for example, like the amount of of cherry, the amount of pesticide that's present in uh, cherries of a given pesticide could be different than the amount that's permissible in say apples. Yeah. And then so you could have one pesticide that's it's it's allowed to be used in cherries. It's allowed to be used in apples, but because there's no official standard for weights, uh, you can't have any detectable pesticide. No. How cautious should people be when they're taking herbs, uh, w when they're taking uh, medicine? You know, we in, in, practice, in clinical practice, we are concerned about uh, herb-drug interactions. So it, one, is there, are there good resources for people? Um, uh, what, what should people do when they're, before they take herbs, uh, I guess is my question for you. Well, I think the issue with uh, herb-drug interactions is one of those things where it really requires like a critical assessment of the evidence because right now what's happening is you have a lot of interest in the topic of herb-drug interactions, but you have only a relatively small number of cases where there's a really well-documented interaction in the literature. And so you have a lot of things where people have these put forward hypothetical interactions or hypothetical scenarios, or they haven't filtered the evidence based on how strong the evidence is for the suspected interaction. So a lot of people are afraid that they'll give the, the, the doctor will give the patient a laundry list of, of different uh, dangers of using herbal medicine. Um, but oftentimes there's very little selection of like really what is the the true risk of these adverse events coming up, coming about. Mm -hmm. um, typical example of that I remember when I was in Taiwan, we had um, some researchers from the NIH had come over looking to build a, a drug interaction database with Chinese oh. medicines. Okay, and uh, we started to mine the available uh, Chinese data, and you have um, in China. Uh, many, many uh, reports um, that were previously done on paper records within individual hospitals that are now all starting to be digitized and shared. So as China's gradually moving more towards electronic medical record keeping, this type of uh, the big data that you're going to start seeing from uh, electronic medical record keeping may clarify a lot of things that we didn't previously um that we weren't previously aware of and in some cases that may well also say a lot about the the safety of chinese medicine as well as uh, the dangers so right you know a typical example of that like if you look at the electronic medical records of taiwan you have about 30 million patient visits per year uh, using chinese medicine Mm -hmm. And so you have a, tr a tremendous amount all being done within an integrated electronic medical record system. So you can um, sort the data and figure out, okay, how many patients with allergic rhinitis were taking this formula mm -hmm. or were taking a singular modification A, B, and C. Mm -hmm. And uh, you can look at the total prescribing data by licensed practitioners. And you could say something like ephedra, which was uh, banned in the U.S. For, uh, for foods and dietary supplements. Right. Um, due to concerns over its safety. But if you look at how ephedra is actually um, prescribed in Chinese medicine, they're not utilizing it for weight loss. They're not utilizing it for athletic performance. They're often, you know, using it based on its traditional indications. 
you have about 4,000 doctors prescribing in the Chinese medical, in the Taiwan medical system, and you have a correlation of adverse events reported. So you can tell that like three of the top 10 formulas by volume in Taiwan contain ephedra. Huh. Um, but the number of adverse events reported in Taiwan um, through nurses, through hospitals, through media reports, through Chinese medicine doctors, through Western medicine doctors, the number of total adverse event reports that make it into the, they have a centralized database where they investigate each report that's been filed or appears in the media. And you can correlate the number of actual adverse incidents to the amount of doses prescribed. And actually the data suggests that it's quite safe when used correctly by well-trained practitioners. So yeah. I think that that's going to be the, the big future for clarifying some of these issues of uh, safety, herb-drug interactions, going to be as Chinese medicine moves into it more, much more of this uh, big data and we'll be able to start to really systematically move from beyond like isolated individual case reports where there's a lot of variables and a lot of hypotheticals about herb-drug interactions to being having much more solid data to go from. That would be great. It, it would be awesome to get Ma Huang and Xixin back in the clinic, wouldn't it? Yeah. Well, Eric, I know we've gone for quite some time talking and you're just an encyclopedic knowledge base mm -hmm. of something that's very uh, fascinating. And um, I know I, I want to learn more and continue to learn more and, and many of our listeners will want to learn more. So um, your website is uh, legendaryherbs.com, right? Yes, it www. is. www.legendaryherbs.com. And you have articles yeah, and I've got research. got a lot of articles and blogs. And um, blogs. Links. So wonderful, wonderful resource. And I just want to thank you so much, you know, for mm -hmm. uh, spending some time with us today and and um, enlightening us. And uh, I really look forward to seeing you back here in San Diego at some point soon. Well, thank you, Greg. And, I look uh, forward to doing more with, more with you guys and more with Pika. Yeah, thank you so much. It's been okay. a pleasure. Thank you so much. Okay. All right. Okay. Take care. Yeah.